Hey, everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, I'm excited to bring you this interview with Aaron Wittick. Uh, we talked about a whole bunch of different things, but one of my favorite parts is we talked about this job that he auditioned for at Stetson that he ended up winning and how he had had his tonsils taken out and just coming back from that and getting back into shape and preparing for a recital. We kind of dove all the way into that. And so I'm excited for you to hear that and a lot more. But before we get into it, I want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. As brass players, the mouthpieces we choose to use will have a huge impact on the sound our instrument produces, as well as how easy it is to produce that sound. Unfortunately, many of us find ourselves playing on mouthpieces that are ill-suited for our needs, making things harder than they need to be. If you're interested in trying out a new mouthpiece, Houghton Horns is the place to go. Houghton Horns has a wide selection of mouthpieces to choose from, including Giddings, Greg Black, Pickett, and many more. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm excited to be here with Aaron Wittick. Uh, Aaron and I have had a relationship with each other for... Over a year now, he uh, signed up to uh, do some of my practice coaching, and we've been able to, uh, you know, just get to know each other and kind of just grow as friends, I think, over this time. And so I'm really excited to be able to dig into uh, Aaron's backstory and things that Aaron cares about, because most of the time it was all business when we had the chance to chat. So this will be fun for me. Hopefully it's fun for you as well. This is also exciting because it's, and he's already announced it at this point, but um, currently Aaron is the trumpet professor at Ithaca University, but starting next fall, he's going to be the assistant professor of trumpet at Stetson University and the coordinator of brass there as well. So uh, he's in the middle of transition, trying to figure out how to move from one place to the other. And uh, it's just an exciting time, I think, a stressful time. So it's kind of a fun time that we caught you at this moment right now and to kind of pick your brain and to see what you're thinking and kind of create a record of that. So before we get started, I really appreciate you being willing to join me today on my podcast and chat with me for a bit. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Uh, myself and my students listen to this podcast, so it's just a thrill to be part of it. And we, if anyone's watching us on video, we both get to... Put our best Princess Leia uh, <laughs> look on for this. <laughs> yeah, well, um, this is going to be awesome for me, especially, like I said, because I, I know you a little bit, but I, I, I'm excited to get the full picture. So to get that picture, why don't we go uh, all the way back as far as you feel is relevant to get a sense of how you got into music, how you got started with trumpet, if there's anything before trumpet, just kind of taking us back there and then we'll go from there. Sure. 
Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a talker, Ryan, so cut me off at any point. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I think something that's interesting to start off with, with this journey of music, was that as a young child, as far as I can remember, I really enjoyed music, you know, and I think most people do. <clears throat> but what was interesting was instead of watching TV, I would sit on my mom's couch and bounce right? Like I would bounce and just listen to radio for hours. And I actually broke her couch because back then couches had springs in the back of them and all mm. from bouncing. Um, but I then found still at this young age, like I start, I, I had a cassette, the best operas. And then I had a cassette, the best like orchestral, instrumental orchestral. I can't remember what it was, if it was overtures or what. And I listened to that. And I just, that's interesting because I don't come from a family of uh, classical musicians or, you know, really musicians. My grandfather on my mother's side played a bunch of instruments, but I really didn't have a relationship with him. He died when I was extremely young. Um, so my brother played cello while in school a little bit, but my mom played drums in high school, you know, so, but there was no like real deep connection. It wasn't going on around me, mm -hmm. but something drawed me to it and something drawed me to performance. Um, just any type of performance, if it's theater, um, going to Disney and seeing the fireworks, all that stuff. It's very moving to me. And so I guess it started there. And then in New York State, which is where I grew up in the Buffalo, New York area, we start uh, in third grade, you do recorder, which I'm sure a lot of people do that around then. But that's the introduction into the next year starting an instrument, if you like to. Um, so they send out like a sheet, right? And it's like rank what you want to play first and all that. And of course I wanted to play drums. Naturally. I think <laughs> I wanted I to, still, yeah, I think I wanted yeah, to start with the drums too. <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't want it? Right. I actually, it's funny. Uh, I'm a Yamaha artist. I, I contacted, uh, my rep and all there. And I said, Hey, I think that I'm about getting a drum set. <laughs> like I still want to play drums. I think it's fun. Yeah. But, um, so I had that number one. I don't remember what number two was. And number three was cello because my brother played cello. I didn't know anything else, you know? So they came uh, to your classroom. They pull you out of your classroom and then they say, hey, um, Aaron, you're going to play cello. Well, I'm a tall, a tall boy. So naturally it would fit for me to carry a cello around, I guess. And I, as soon as the orchestra teacher left, I went up to Mr. Lane, who was the high school or sorry, the elementary band's. Uh, teacher and I said I don't want to play in the orchestra I want to play in the band so I remember going to my brother's concerts and the band played like Colonel Bogey March and all these cool tunes you know mm -hmm. um, he's like okay well you can play cornet and I thought he said clarinet but it didn't matter I just wanted to be in the band yeah. so that's how I started like you know just by chance just all a mistake <laughs> right? it was all a mistake I had no idea I show up and they give me this thing that looks like a trumpet so, I mean, I remember, like, I have so many funny stories, you know, getting the mouthpiece stuck right away as soon as I took it home. Can't figure out why it's not making any noise when I blow into it, right? All those fun things. And it, it's good to remember those stories because when you're teaching, to go back and just recall what you did or to recall, like, that excitement, right? We always, when days get bad and all, we have to remind ourselves why, why we do this or what... You know, yeah. what, you know, what is the goal here? Why did we pick up this piece of tubing? So, uh, so yeah, you know, I done, did, of course, the, the typical, you know, public school band, played with the orchestra a little bit, 
played in a jazz ensemble. I played lead there. I played in the competitive marching band. And then I ended up marching drum and bugle corps. Uh, DCI, I marched with a group called the Rochester Patriots and the Crossmen. And the reason I bring that up is because that was, I, I didn't grow up with a lot of money or anything, and it was expensive. It was a huge investment. But I wasn't taking private lessons very often. I took some with my high school band director, who was a trumpet player, um, biweekly lessons, like my junior and senior year. Um, but drum corps forced me to learn, like, how to play a lip slur. I didn't really do that before. You know, like, all these fundamentals and stuff. And just to play your horn every day during the summer. And then all of a sudden I learned like what, uh, you know, I learned all this orchestral rep that I never knew because I wasn't exposed to it, but drum corps were playing. So I then looked it up. So maybe it's a backwards way of learning rep, but it was like, it was really cool. I was like, oh, this piece is pretty neat. Mahler, who's that dude, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was a huge part and still is a huge part in my life. I've been in that, I've been in the marching arts for 20 something years. Uh, I'm currently right now consulting with the cadets. I've been the assistant caption head there for years. Blue Stars, all kinds of stuff. So anyways, um, I then went to the Crane School of Music, SUNY Potsdam, located in upstate New York uh, in the Adirondacks. And I studied with a gentleman by the name of John Ellis there. Mm -hmm. And I studied music education. I wanted to be a band director. And that's what, that's my plan. That was my plan. Uh, and in New York State, you have to get a master's degree um, within, you have to start a master's degree within five years of teaching the public school system. Uh, so... Uh, I graduated right during the the housing recession, and they weren't filling jobs. They were cutting jobs. So I decided to go right on into my master's, and I was very, very, very fortunate to get a graduate assistantship at Florida State University, where I studied with uh, Brian Goff and Christopher Moore. And I studied natural trumpet with Brian Goff and with Chris Moore, uh, studied obviously trumpet and all that stuff. Um, and so my graduate assistantship was unique because I was teaching trumpet majors. I was teaching lessons right away. I was coaching chamber music groups. Um, and what an experience, like to be fresh out of your undergrad and now you have to do that, right? And uh, it was exciting. And I still, I'm still in contact with some of my first students and to see what they're doing, it's remarkable. Uh, so it was getting towards the end of my master's degree and I was like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I should go do a doctorate. I didn't know if I should go do the public school thing. Uh, I was really having this dilemma of figuring out because it's interesting. I, like in my undergrad, hated teaching one-on-one -on -one lessons, did not enjoy it. I did not enjoy general music. I wanted to teach high school. I wanted to teach marching band. I wanted to be in front of the band conducting. That's what I wanted to do. And then when I student taught, all of a sudden I started to find, oh, you know what? Teaching general music is a lot of fun. Mm. And I was shocked by that because I never ever would have thought I would have liked that. And then I go do my master's and all of a sudden I really like this level of detail. I can be with one-on-one -on -one with a student and this uh, mentorship that I can provide and this relationship, creating these deep connections with someone. So, um, I said, I'm never going to go back for a doctorate otherwise. So I went on. Now, I would never, <laughs> to be honest, I don't advise going right on into your doctorate right out of your master's. I don't, but I did it yeah. because, and the reason I don't advise is because by the end, you are so tired of being in school and you need some more life experiences, I think. Um, but I did it and um, I auditioned at several places, got into a few, 
But I ended up deciding I was going to stay at Florida State University with Chris Moore. Brian Goff had retired at that time. And I think it was the best decision I could have ever made. Uh, it was hard. It was very challenging. I injured myself during my doctorate, all kinds of stuff. Um, but that relationship with my professor and mentor has meant the world to me. And we still talk today. And I just learned so many life lessons that don't even deal with Trump. Trump you know, uh, I, I know this is very long winded. I'm sorry, my history. Um, I then went on uh, after my doctor, I completed my doctorate, um, had a degree in hand, and I won my first job uh, full-time teaching at University of Louisiana Monroe as an instructor of trumpet. Uh, and I won that like two and a half weeks before the semester started. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was a very late posting. My friend, um, you probably know Brian Walker, who teaches mm -hmm. at Tarleton in Texas. He said, hey, just letting you know, this job is going to be posted very soon. There's an email that went around about it and you should apply. And so I was on the road, actually, on tour with a drum corps teaching. I just happened to come back and uh, I was standing up in a wedding in which I got a phone call from one of my best friends now, Jason Reinhardt. And uh, I answered the phone and he's like, yeah, we would like to schedule a phone interview. So when you do, you know, the college route, trying to get a college job, there's phone interview or, or a Zoom interview. Uh, you send all your recordings beforehand, right? There's all these steps. Yeah. And so he says, we'd like to do a phone interview. And I'm like, great, when? He's like, how about now? I'm like, gulp. <laughs> I'm like, I'm in my boxers walking around my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> just woke up. My heart's racing. I'm like, I'm not prepared for this. I just got home from being on the road. So um, I do it and just, I don't know. I, I sometimes look back at this. I'm like, man, I had a lot of courage to ask this question. But I said at the end of it, I said, so um, when are you guys looking to move ahead with this and invite someone to campus and all? Because uh, I'm leaving tomorrow for a wedding. I'm standing up and then I go back on the road to go teach uh, drum corps. And he's like, yeah, um, probably probably in a day or so. I said, okay, great. I got a call back like two and a half hours later. So we want you to come to campus. Wow. Can you come tomorrow? I said, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I mean, I had to book a flight and all that stuff, but I'm like, I have to go stand up in this wedding. And on the road when I'm teaching drum corps, I keep my chops up a little bit, but I'm not playing a ton. So uh, I, I was able to arrange soon as the wedding was done to fly out of... Where did I fly out of? I, fly, I flew out of Mobile, I think. Yeah, because the wedding was close to there, to Monroe, Louisiana. But in between the wedding and everything that was going on, the rehearsal and all that stuff, I was in my my hotel room shedding. Sure, of course. Trying to get a program together. Not only that, but like they said, yeah, you're going to play with the Brass Trio as well as part of... I'm like, oh, man. I'm like, I don't really know much Brass Trio rep besides the Poulenc, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I ended up uh, winning that job, which was awesome. Um, worked with some great people, got excellent experience, built a studio from four to 14. Um, I was working 80 hours a week my first year. It was insane. Uh, I ended up becoming the assistant athletic band director for a little while while I was there. And then I ended up not doing that. And my position changed three times. I was instructor. Then I was in an endowed professorship that didn't have tenure. And then I became in a tenure track. Mm. So that was a wild ride. And then I won my job at Ithaca College. Um, 
And here at Ithaca, it's been great. Uh, I've been here, this is my fourth year. And as you said, I am leaving after this year and I am going over to Stetson University, uh, become the coordinator of brass and uh, teach trumpet there. And I'm beyond excited. I'm so thankful for everywhere I've been and how I've grown. Um, there's a lot of lessons I've learned and uh, I enjoy, I enjoy, um, I enjoy, I guess, taking on this new chapter and, 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 and going back to Florida. It'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> so there you have it. I mean, that's at great. least that's my, my professional career besides, I guess I didn't get into like orchestra stuff and all that, but sure. that's, yeah, primarily, I mean, I'm, yeah, a collegiate teacher for the most part. Yeah. That's my 99% job. <laughs> uh, what's one of those lessons that you just that you just described. You said, I learned a lot of lessons. What's one lesson you feel like you learned that uh, is near and dear to you? Uh, that kind of thing. <laughs> like, what's one of them? Well, gosh, there's so many lessons and all, but um, maybe sometimes the lesson is learning who you are, mm. you know? Um, and I think that's been a huge part of this, this journey is you think you know who you are and all, and then you start to learn more and what your values are. You know, they start to become more concrete. And um, so I think like, I don't know, like, yeah, the values is, is really where it goes to, uh, you know, like I learned that something that's extremely important to me is a deep connection with people. Mm and relationships. And I learned that that has made me successful at what I do. Um, recruiting, getting students, you know, to where they want to be, pushing them past what they thought they could do, um, working with colleagues. So relationships is, is really important to me, uh, and deep connection. But then, I mean, there's other lessons, right? I've learned like, uh, you can work 24 hours and then more every day. Mm. And I remember when I took my first college, I'm like, oh, only 15 hours of contact with students. Oh, this is going to be a breeze. I'm going to practice all the time and all that. So a lesson is, is that uh, you need to take care of you. And if you are a giver and a pleaser uh, and you put others first, which I do all the time, uh, it's very easy to not have, to not take care of yourself. So, you know, like a huge reason I started working with Ryan was I wanted to invest in me again. And I realized that I was giving everything I had to everyone else. And what was I doing for myself? You know, um, because growth, not only seeing others grow, but growth within myself is motivating. So that's a huge lesson is that, you know, doing the collegiate thing, you have a boss or you have a supervisor and all, but they're not telling you what to, they're not telling you or recognizing maybe how much you're doing. I, I don't even know if that's the right thing to say, but there's always going to be tons of work. There's always going to be recruitment emails, committees. You need to practice gig. No one's going to say you're doing too much. Mm, yeah. You know, no one's ever going to say that. And uh, so it's really easy to just keep taking stuff on and, and, and keep going. So you have to start prioritizing. And I know I used the word values earlier, um, 
but I'm going to say again, kind of about values is you, your actions really, uh, your actions really display what your values are. We may know what we think we know what our values are, but then your actions display it. And it's interesting because I started to realize like Trump, it's super important to me, but I wasn't taking care of that. Like I was just working my tail off trying to do all these other things because a bigger value than trumpet was me pleasing other people sure. or helping other people well, or whatever it might be. And I would, I, I think if we want to try to frame it in a slightly positive way, obviously you're like trying to like do things that will show that you're a quote, good colleague or that you're willing to go the extra mile to demonstrate that you're the right person for the job to get tenure and all these types of things, right? Like it's not so much just that like you don't care about yourself at all, but there is an element of like, I'm doing this, all of this extra stuff for other people sort of for myself too, so that I can like continue to have this job. So I think there's an element of that that I imagine was fueling you as well. A hundred percent. And thank you for saying that. Cause yeah, I would have totally <laughs> left that. Yeah, it, it is. Um, so I recognize that, but I knew that trumpet is a value of mine when I would do it. Cause then I'd be like all excited when I'm working towards a recital or whatever. So trying to get things to be more in a line, right? I don't talk, I don't think I tell my students, there's no such thing as work-life balance. I don't believe in it. There's a work-life ratio. I guess a balance is a ratio, sure. but you got to find what that is for you. And that's what, uh, you know, we're always trying to discover. And that may be different at different points of your life. Right now, I'm trying to sell a house, as you mentioned, and do a bunch of stuff. So that shifts, you know? Yeah. So it's got to come from somewhere. You can't just add more. And so I guess that was a big lesson was like, I was just trying to work myself to death and, um, and in the end of the day, you know, I think the most important thing is all we have is our memories. So make sure you're making memories that count and that are good. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things I, I would love for you to speak to, because you seem to be relatively pretty open, right, about even already some of these things that you've struggled with. So this could be an interesting sure. question to ask. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> you know, when we get our education, especially if you have your eyes set on some sort of educational path, right? Um, mm -hmm. You're learning everything you possibly can about the most effective way to teach people, but it can only prepare you to some point. And then actually getting out there and teaching people is probably where you finally learn, getting your hands, working with people, that kind of thing. So how do we, what's that transition like from here's all these things that I think will work to I've worked with people and I'm starting to find things that do work, things that don't work. How do you feel like, one of the things I've struggled with basically to frame this is while I'm figuring things out, people that I'm working with aren't, they're not getting like, they're getting me figuring it out, right? They're not getting me having had it figured out. Does that make sense? Like even working with you mm -hmm. in the past, there's things that I was valuing with you that I still value now, but I know so much more now. And so I feel like, oh man, if only I knew what I knew back then, you know, or what I know now back then, however you would say that, I could have given you so much more, so much better, you know? So how do we trade, how do we handle this sort of, uh, now that you've spent this much time uh, teaching, how do we handle, like, yeah. there's going to be a period where we are learning and figuring out and there's people that we're going to be working with. And it's sort of like this, I maybe just need to accept that I'm not going to do I don't want to say my best teaching because we're always giving our best teaching at all times, but maybe the question makes sense at this point and I'll just let you answer it. <laughs> so I think what you said, Ryan, is 
is spot on. We are we are definitely learning, but I think also it's a sign that you're a great teacher because you're thinking about your students or you're thinking about your past students or whatever and how you can continue to help them. I time and time again think all the way back to my first students. I'm like, oh man, like this student had this trouble. I'm like, and I figured this out finally, how to work with somebody, only if I could go back. And sometimes I've even reached out back to students. I'm like, hey, I got something exciting to share. Mm, To me, you can see me light up talking about that because to me, like, I love that. Uh, Teaching's a creative process and it's exciting to figure out. We're not figuring out just a trumpet, we're figuring out a human and every human's different. So if you think that you have the answer on how to fix it all, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in that because every human's different and one trick doesn't work for another person. Right. And a lot of times it's not just a quick fix, right? Sure. It's, a, it's the long process uh, of knowing how to get a student from point A to point D and hitting those other points through there. But some people just try to get right there and it doesn't, it doesn't always work that way. So it's like training your body and all, you know, you don't want to hurt yourself. Um, so a period uh, I would say that I would disagree that there is a period of time that we are learning how to teach because I think we are always learning how to teach. We are all, yeah, I think we are always learning new things or new, new ways. My ideas of things have changed for sure. Um, so, you know, I, <laughs> my, my approach to teaching comes, it, it, I think most of ours come from an experimental stay or experimental yeah, stage, but also, or process, but also I learn differently than when, like in high school, I learn different than other people, you know? Um, and, and I'm very open and honest. And, uh, and, and finally, I feel like people are being more open and honest about ADHD and all, and I have it. Uh, and it has really, really been beneficial. And it's been also not beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember like, uh, I'll use an example in high school, I took, it was algebra and the teacher was very old school and would put on the, on the, on the chalkboard, uh, what the assignment's going to be and what we're covering in that class. And I sat in the back corner, I opened my textbook and I taught myself the whole class. Uh, and it worked for me. That's how that worked. Now, other classes that would not work, but I always had like a different way of learning I found. And, and it was not always easy. Actually, it was complete opposite. It was very hard, but I learned a lot of techniques about myself, about being curious on how to learn. I guess is maybe the, the thing to say and and how to look at something a different way. That's the big one. And that helped helps me be a teacher because teaching is several different things, right? We have to be the motivator. We have to be the person with the knowledge. We have to be the person to help analyze what's going on, but then how to turn that information around and help the student, right? And also not freak them out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then also develop a plan how to get them there. So yeah, it's it's uh I love it, man. That's the best part of teaching to me is that and then figuring it out with a student. It's so exciting. Um I don't know if I answered the question fully because I can't remember what it was because I talked for so long, but that's all right, man. No, I mean 
I love that perspective, you know, that there's all of these challenges and it, some people could see, well, there's like teaching, you have to learn all of these things. And like you kind of laid out that list of things and it could seem possibly overwhelming for people who maybe don't understand how to make a plan or who don't feel like they mo can effectively motivate. But for you, it's just like, well, these are the best parts is figuring out about myself, what I struggle with in, in these various aspects of teaching, and then sort of overcoming that so I can be a better motivator, I can make better plans, I can be a better expert on trumpet playing, that kind of thing. And ultimately, it's almost as if, I, if I'm hearing you right, it's almost as if like, although teaching is for the student, right? You're the teacher, they're the student. It's like through the process of trying to become a better teacher, it's like you're making yourself a student at the same exact time, but sort of a student of yourself. Is that sort of a way to say it? A hundred percent. I mean, the, the students teach us all the time, right? I always ask them for feedback. I'm like, so what do you notice? What are you, you know, and that helps inform me, but that's also helping me come up with an idea or something. So it's, 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 it's a blast. It's so fun. Um, it's fulfilling, right? We want things that fulfill us. Um, you know, and, and something else I wanted to mention about the teaching is some teach trumpet, right? I don't teach trumpet. I teach, I teach human beings and the trumpet is my tool to help people become better people. Mm. And that doesn't mean I'm not holding them to extremely high standards. You know, I have two students competing in the national trumpet competition next week. I have a trumpet on all that stuff. And that's great. But in the end, these are human beings and the trumpet is my, is the tool to help teach life lessons. Now, am I going in and saying, Oh, well, this flexibility study is going to teach you this life lesson. No, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it's like our students are trusting us. And if they're an undergrad, they're with you for four years, right? Yeah. They're putting a lot of trust. I feel so much responsibility to my students and that can be stressful as well. Um, and so I want to be better for them, but I also want to be better for me. And something that's very motivating is growth. I love growth. So it's fun to teach. Um, so as a teacher, it's not just a trumpet, but how do I help that student through whatever? And and I'm going to be real. And, and, and Ryan, I've loved working with you and our interactions and all. And it hasn't always been just trumpet. I might ask you a question like, you know, how do you deal with blah during this week? You know, if you're feeling this way or something. And with my students, I, I've had to help students have twice to have lost a parent. I've had to help students come out. I've had to help students who maybe didn't bathe, you know, who self-injured themselves, you know, like hurting themselves in all different kinds of situations. And then also great things, right? I want a job. What do I do? How do I negotiate this? All these things. I'm their mentor. And to have that responsibility is huge. It's, it's humbling as well. And the fact that somebody trusts you or still calls you up after you taught them 10 years ago, and that's just remarkable to me, you know, and that's, you know, and where do I get that? I get that from my teachers, right? Um, I think, you know, you studied with Barbara and she's a great coach as well and all in life, I feel. So the trumpet and yeah, we learn from, we, we're all, it's a community. And that's what I try to establish in my studio. It's a community, the environment, and we're all learning from each other. We're all there to help each other out. 
and it's fun. Yeah, man. Yeah, I it's I've asked various trumpet teachers about this kind of idea. What is your what do you feel like your relationship is or your responsibility is with the sort of extra so if the trumpet is the thing we're supposed to be doing, there's all these extra mm-hmm. things about, you know, kids who are I'll speak to myself. I can't speak to anybody else's experience. But when I was 18 to 21 years old, like I just I feel like when you're all of a sudden out on your own for the first time and you're making all of your decisions (laughs) and you don't have like your parents to fall back on and be like, well, what should I do? And all that like I did not necessarily thrive in every way. We'll put it that way, you know. Yeah. And so to have my undergrad teacher, Michael Anderson, did help considerably help me considerably understand what it's going to be like to function in society, you know, as a musician specifically, but as you're saying, as you described, like it has uh, extra implications. And so to me, it's really interesting to see where people may draw the line and say like, okay, up to here, I'm good. But outside somebody like they need to go seek some people who actually do this kind of thing, who are trained to help people with serious matters. Um, and other people who may feel that, you know, they've struggled in similar ways. And um, yeah. so that they may feel more qualified to speak to it. I don't know. I just find it really interesting that the fact that that's the conversation we're having as trumpet teachers, that <laughs> it's obviously so much bigger than just how do you play the trumpet? And I think all, per, all educators would agree with this sentiment, obviously up to some degree. And everyone draws that mm-hmm. line in a different place for whatever reason. A hundred percent. I have colleagues who are like, I don't want to know anything about my students. I mean, like, I don't want to know what they did over the weekend. I don't, you know, like they're very, we're going to focus on this. Um, and I have teachers or colleagues that are the opposite way. Uh, it takes a village to help a person. So I, I mean, I do, I, you know, I will walk a student down to the counseling center if I have to, you know, I'll put in, uh, a reference for them if need be. We talk about it. Um, you know, <laughs> we have our own life experiences, right? And as we get older as teachers, this is where we become wiser in many ways, right? We become wiser in the sense of, oh, this is an issue a hundred of my students have had in the past. I can identify it quicker. I know how to get there quicker or, you know, things like that. That's where, yes, that learning when we were talking about like, that period, yeah, there's a, an extreme period at the beginning, right? It's like, oh my yeah. goodness. I don't, like, and your ears aren't even developed, right? You have to, like, now I can listen to a trumpet. I'm like, oh, I know exactly what the issue is without even looking at them, you know? Yeah. Um, but having those life experiences and those challenges, maybe, not even bad things, right? These great moments and all, like, as an older person, we're not old, but we've had experiences, we can help. We can help our our students and to recognize, we can recognize things, you know? I mean, I, in a way, I wish I, I took more like psychology classes in, during my undergrad when I was taking education and all. Um, and maybe then I wish, <laughs> the only thing we took was like child development, right? Mm-hmm. Which, okay, great. I know all these theories on that. And I guess that's helpful for teaching, but like, I almost would have rather learned how to read something or how to understand how I can help someone. What are things, you know, to watch out for? Uh, Yeah, I've been in situations, you know, I remember this one student, like I said, lost a parent. I had no clue what to do. 
None. I hadn't had that happen to me. I can't imagine, you know? Um, so, you know, you, it takes a village. And if I, so sometimes I will just say, you know, like, I really think you, you know, maybe we should explore the counseling center or something like that. But I am here for you in any way that I can be. If that's just a person you need to talk to, if that's a person you just need to come in and play your trumpet and not talk about it, that's cool. So um, I already said I'm in, you know, deep relationships and like deep connection and relationships. That's really important to me. And that's a motivator for students as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to displease Dr. Wittick, which is not always what I want to happen. So a lot of my students have learned I'm not going to be angry at you or something if you show up one week and things didn't go well. Like you didn't get to everything. It happens, you know. We're going to talk about why. We're going to talk about how we can maybe prevent that. Now, if it happens multiple weeks in a row, in a row, now someone else starts to come out of the I, a different Dr. Wittick shows up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, and that's that's something that's interesting is as a teacher, you have to determine what relationship is correct for every student, and that we have that. That's one of the benefits we have with one-on-one -on -one teaching, right? When you're in front of a classroom. You don't have that. You have to kind of teach in this neutral ground because you have 25 students or whatever. So it might be the buddy-buddy. It might be the strict teacher. It might be a combination of the two. Normally, it's more that one. Sure, you sure. Know? Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's uh, again, it's, it's, it's really interesting to learn about people. I'm fascinated with making connections. And I'm also fascinated with like self-help books and stuff like that. Uh, so my students get to get a lot of knowledge from me researching about different ways, which is how you and I started working together. You know, I was working out pretty heavily. Um, I am now too, but like I had just started working with a trainer and I knew that you did weightlifting and all, and that you were taking this science, right? I'm going to say sports science, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. And you are applying it to how we practice. And as a person who doesn't have a ton of time to practice because, you know, all the other parts of my job, I was fascinated with this. And that's how we got connected, you know, and or how we became connected. And it's been awesome. <laughs> I've learned so much. <laughs> well, I, let's like kind of dive into that because the circumstances surrounding your Stetson audition are I think very fascinating <laughs> if we want to use that word because um, I'll share the the amount. I mean, obviously, I know most of the story, but just like to set the mm -hmm. stage. Sure. Um, from what you told me, these when you apply for a job, sometimes things can happen very quickly, and so as you know, when or you when you apply for an orchestra audition, it's like okay, it's going to be on this day, and I know when it's going to be, and I can prepare for that day. But it seems like. Uh, applying for a, a teaching position is not necessarily that reliable at all times. And so you put in for this job, not knowing what was going to happen. And you had had your, uh, your tonsils, right. Or your wisdom teeth, my tonsils, yeah, your tonsils out. Yeah. And so you were basically coming, you're trying to work your way back. So we had first started talking about just building a routine that was going to help you get back into shape after, I think it was five weeks of not playing, if I'm not wrong. 
Um, uh, it was it was four weeks yeah, of not four playing. Weeks yeah, of not yeah playing. it was a month. Yeah. So we were like, well, what would be a you know just from an experiment point of view, what would be a good way right. to get back into shape? And I was like, okay, I'll think about a program. And I wrote it for you. You're like, this is cool. You start doing it. You make the adjustments that you felt were necessary based on what you were actually feeling. And then all of a sudden, not that long after, you have to go and audition for this job, and you're sort of at the beginning of getting back in shape. And so like that's sort of like setting the stage. And I just kind of want to unpack this because. to to have been successful in this um, successful meaning the outcome you wanted. I mean, there's all all sorts of different ways to define success. In this case, the outcome you wanted, I think will be a cool case study to sort of expand upon. So with all that being said, if you kind of want to take us into where you were and your experience, I would love to unpack this. Sure. Yeah. So uh, Ryan made a program for me of getting me back in shape. And I think it was like, four or five days after that it was like we want you to come out and you have to play a recital you have to do a uh, i had to do an hour teaching demonstration i had to do a presentation interviews all that stuff and i'm like okay <coughs> when and the dates were for like next weekend the next week after that or, or not weekend but like that next week the next week after that and then the next week after that, i'm like Oh gosh. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm like, well, we were in the middle of auditions here at Ithaca college. Um, and so they wanted to do the interviews like on Thursday and Friday and we do auditions here on Saturday and it, it's winter. So I was concerned if I could get back in time. So the only one I could do is the last one. Uh, so I took the audition with three and a half weeks of playing being back on the horn after a month off. <laughs> and I will say before that month off, I wasn't playing a ton after my last gig because I knew I was taking some substantial time off. So I had to get my tonsils out. I was, my tonsils were huge. My tonsils were almost touching each other. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it, uh, this was, you know, it was fascinating to me too, Ryan, because, um, I learned a lot during this process as in like of trust. Yeah. I had to, there was no other option. It's like, you're either going to trust this process or not. So I set up a bunch of like, uh, I was doing what, so Ryan has this exercise starts and I have my own variation on it that I started to do. And pretty much it's like one, two, three, breathe, blow air. Like I do air pattern first with a small aperture. And then I went to a visualizer and would do it because I realized how much I was hesitating to let my air go one two. how much tension there was in my throat so i was just trying to get rid of that stuff and then i would move to the mouthpiece then i'm trying to get the pitch from bouncing all around just getting it to be stable and i would do this for four beats long because i wanted to work on blowing through versus just daw yes you know sidebar sorry yeah I, it's so funny when you describe this to me because i realized instead of just doing this first attack practice like it's like the way you are framing it. It's like I did this first attack, but I held it for four beats. But in reality, it's just like long tones. <laughs> you know, that's like what you were doing. But we were like, oh, it's yeah. this modified exercise. But really, it's just long tones. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, I know. I still call it starts. This is how I teach it as yeah. well, because it's about blowing through. Yeah, yeah. But to me, the reason is, is because, right, we have an association with long tones, probably from when we were a kid or whatever, which is like put the horn up the face. Go. Uh, sure, yeah. and I'm not like actually blowing and, mm-hmm. and, and moving forward with my air and all. So yeah, it is funny. Yes. It's long tones, I guess. <laughs> um, 
with a, a hyper focus. The reason I'm talking about this exercise, though, is because it made me realize, like, at that time, how much I needed to commit to my air, which, I mean, I knew that, but, like, I just had two tonsils that were almost touching each other removed from my throat. My air was completely different, you know? Like, so I felt like I had to... I There wasn't as much uh, restriction, I guess, or... um resistance. Yeah, yeah. So now I'm like trying to, it's not just, oh, I'm getting myself back in shape for three and a half weeks. It's, I'm trying to figure out the trumpet feels like a different instrument right now. You know, like <laughs> I was tonguing and it hurt the tongue because like when I would double tongue, cause it was hitting where my tonsils removed kind of, you know, like huh. it was a little bit sore, like, cause it was swollen still, you know, like there was like a lot of stuff going on. So, um, so this, anyways, the starts thing, you know, I then eventually go to a horn. I was spending 20 minutes every day doing this, okay? Because I focused on a small aperture. I focused on my read and getting it to be as efficient as possible. Mm -hmm. I didn't work so much on range. I worked on my read. Because if I could get my read to respond right, everything else can follow. How do you get your, your read to respond right? Well, air. And then two, the focus of the aperture, but with it being pliable in the center. Because at least in my my history of as a trumpet player is when things aren't going well, I tense up. Yep, yep. <laughs> so you would tense here and all that. And things weren't going very well because I was like, I don't even know in three and a half weeks if I'm going to be able to like pull off playing a tune. And that was like a whole nother thing was trying to figure out repertoire that I'm going to play for this recital. Yeah, right. I was like, and I was texting you. I'm like, uh, and I decided, you know, sometimes it's good to just be, to put your blinders on, right? I don't know if you remember the program. I picked Torelli G1. So here I am, three and a half weeks, I'm going to play piccolo. And I do, I did the first and second movement where I'm playing up the high Fs, mm -hmm. left and right, okay? But piccolo is like my super strong thing. So I didn't play piccolo until week two. I started to play piccolo. And again, very much focusing. Everything was about focus. I did so many, so much mental practice, so much air patterns. And then I set up uh, a gold system. At least, I don't know if you call this something else, Ryan. I, I call it just a gold system. <laughs> but where it's the 3% tempo increase. And I made a chart, right? Like on Excel of four tempos, right? And then go back to mm -hmm. on for different spots of music that I had to yeah, work for on. For anyone listening, it's it's basically the equivalent of what the Gold Method app, the Etude program is. It's like mm -hmm. the equivalent of that. So you start with your whatever tempo you're going to start with, and then it's a 4% increase. Ah, and so you basically, sorry. like if you start at 60, you're going to, you'll play one repetition of whatever section at 60, and then you move on to 4% more than that, which in this case is 62, and then 4% more than that, and 4% more than that. For four repetitions total, the next time that you practice it, you'll go back essentially 8%. And so if it was 60, 62, 64, 67, because it's a percentage increase that gets more as the tempos gets higher, then you would drop back to 64 and start there. And this is just a progression that I made that I shared with Aaron that I find to be a very efficient and sort of reliable way to make sure you have a chance to ingrain good habits at the beginning of the process. But it doesn't, because it's exponential, it doesn't take an eternity to get to the end because it's sort of, it's like you spend about 
if you started at half tempo, the first week is like 50 to about 75% of the tempo or maybe even 80. And then it jumps, uh, or maybe it's the other way around. I can't, I haven't done the math, but long story short, mm-hmm. that's what he's talking about. Just so no one's left out in the conversation. It's what I think to be a very efficient way to learn music. And it's what you get in the Etude app. Continue. Which, yeah, it's the Etude app and the, and the, the literature app. And then the fundamental app is amazing. I love it. Um, I set up an Excel thing at this time uh, because I was like, I had to know. Uh, I, I had to set up a different, I mean, I just, I had to set up things differently because I was on such an accelerated Absolutely. time path. And I needed to, for me, I needed to visually see I was going to get there, mm-hmm. you know? And that's what I love about doing that. It's like, you can invest the time in slow practice and mental practice and air practice and get yourself there in time. I had to make a plan for everything that I was practicing to do that. Um, and knowing that I can't play a full program every day cause I'm out of shape. Yeah. So trusting that and knowing, I mean, it was so much about trust. And so did I, um, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead and then jump back. Um, did I know, uh, the, the things that I learned during this time were just actually things that I learned with you and others before, but like really, I had no option. I had to buy into yeah. it. So seeing it pay off, right? Um, so my practice, so I was selecting, a, I was selecting rep and they're like, well, we need no rep for the accompanist. I'm like, can't even play like a G on top of the staff yet. <laughs> I'm like, but me just being me, I'm like, I'm going to pick music that I love, that I really enjoy playing. And also knowing that I want to show, I want to show uh, diversity in all different ways, eras, uh, you know, and, and, and BIPOC composers and um, different styles. So I ended up doing Torelli G1, first and second movement, the Neruda uh, first movement, which... <laughs> Again, if I play it the I played it the way I I like to play it, like I play a million high G's in the piece. Like my cadenza just hits high G, high G, high G, which is a high concert B flat over and over again. Yeah. And I'm just like I'm just going to do it because that's what I know. You know, I'm like as long as I can get myself somewhat in shape and my air working right, I know if I can get my air right, it'll be there. Uh, what did I do? I did uh, Jennifer Higdon's. Um, like a song, one of, she has trumpet songs. I did one of those and I did a Mendez thing and I did Centennial Horizon by Kevin McKee. And so that, I mean, that's a fair amount of playing, yeah, yeah. you know, um, and all different horns, right? Pick E flat, C, B flat. I was playing. Uh, so to get, you know, a lot, I mean, whenever I like, you know, during the summer, if you take two weeks off, I normally just go right to B flat and I just work on that for a while. And then I add a C and all that, but now I'm like trying to get in shape on everything. So I started to add that into my fundamental rotation. But again, knowing that I don't have a lot of chops to play with. Um, so I spent so much more time listening. I spent so much time doing air patterns and I did like, and when I say air patterns, like the music, but forming an embouchure, right? A small aperture and just, and, and fingering through something, whatever, having the horn. I like to put the horn in front of my face and below with the mouthpiece a little bit away. So I'm directing my ear. I really enjoy doing it that way. A lot of singing. I mean, I was just practicing that way. 
and then really focusing on fundamentals. Most of my playing was fundamentals. The rep was like a lot more mental and in this. And then I would start, you know, bumping that up, playing the rep as I could. Uh, and then I remember contacting you and I'm like, man, not going well. It was like going real. It was like growing. I was going, I was going. And then all of a sudden I crashed and it was like, it hurt. The, like it just burned. It burned. I wasn't in shape and all. And we ended up like doing something. I ended up doing like, I took time off, but I ended up doing it in a way like where I still mental practiced for a day. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I ended up doing the day off, like how I teach my students when they can't afford a day off, which is 24 hours off. That doesn't mean it's actually two nights of sleep. Sometimes that means I stopped at five. And I play at five the next day and things started to feel better. And then it started to get better and better. And then I was getting closer to the gig or to the, the audition. And what I need to make sure everyone understands is the amount that I played the repertoire at tempo was very little. I played everything just trusting slow, good habits, making sure my read, my mouthpiece, or my, my, my lips were responding and my air was doing the work. And, uh, and then I'm getting close and I'm like, I'm getting, I could feel I was getting tired again. And I asked you, I'm like, what do you think I should do the day before? Cause I know if I was just, I'm going to say old Aaron Whittick. <laughs> old Aaron Wittick would just muscle his way through and practice a whole nother day. Like, Oh, I don't need a day off. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. And you, and you said, why don't you just take the day off or play really light? And for me, I actually did it. I took that day. I traveled <laughs> that day. I, I did, I did do air pattern practice with fingers and singing. Sure. I didn't play the horn. And because that next day, I had to, I started at 7 a.m. that next day. My rehearsal was after breakfast with a committee member, interview with the provost. And then I had rehearsal right away and rehearsal went right into the recital. Yeah. So yeah. we, yes, we only play, we only play a 30-ish minute recital when we do these interviews, but the rehearsal was an hour. So I played for an hour and a half and I could not do that at home, like practicing, getting ready. And, uh, it's, so it was a lot of just relying on good habits and just buying into that. So we have to trust that we know what we're doing. And, and so I really teach this all with my students. It's like you try buying into this, really spend the time and go slow. But when you go slow, play it musical. Make sure you're doing the stuff correctly, as in setting properly. The pitch is good. The centering's good. Musically, you have all the intent there. And then the only thing you're changing is that speed. And you can practice that speed without even playing sometimes. You know, obviously, we need to get to a point where flexibility's in there and we can get around the horn sure, quickly. Sure. But that's one little element compared to all of it, right? So, yeah, that's kind of what yeah. it was. There's a couple of, yeah, there's a couple of things that I want to try to, to, uh, I guess, focus on. The first is that one of the things that's difficult for me that I find to be difficult to share about this sort of gold method and the gold method app specifically is that I find that in the application that it was designed to learn etudes, to learn difficult etudes, you don't really have to do much to adjust it, right? But you can also use it for other things and then adjust as necessary. And that is okay to do. And, and in that case, it sort of acts as a baseline structure 
that makes it easier to make adjustments rather than, well, because I can't use this exact thing, I'm just going to start over. Because more than likely, you just won't have any structure <laughs> instead of like, mm -hmm. I'll take this pre-existing one and adjust it the way that you did. Can you sort of speak? I mean, you said it's because of an accelerated timetable, but are there any other ways that you knew? If I remember right, you were like, I'm going to just do only these like specific sections I need rather than the way that I do it, which is like, you want to try to cover the whole piece because you were, um, can you speak a little bit more yeah. of like how you adjusted it, how you knew it was okay to adjust it. So other people can yeah. kind of hear that, um, sure. it can be used in that kind of way. Yeah. You're a hundred percent right. I was not, I went into playing the recital, sometimes playing certain parts only one or two times before that. Cause I knew they weren't, I sang them and all, but I didn't spend my time focusing on it. I focused on what I needed. Um, and so uh, so that was an adjustment. It didn't take me through the whole piece, right? In uh, the another adjustment, and you can do this with the app and all, is like I realized like I got to a certain tempo point maybe, and I was like, mm, I need to go back. Mm -hmm. So I actually built in, even though I only had playing the rep, maybe three weeks of playing the rep, I built in actually some buffer time in there, knowing that that could be a potential thing and that I might need to go back a little bit and give it a couple more days to marinate on something mm -hmm. that might either be a tricky fingering or just getting the chops and tongue to line up, you know? Yeah. Um, I think another thing, Ryan, is sometimes the amount of reps for me was like something that I, so let's say we're doing the 4% increase and there's four reps a day. I remember with the accelerated timeline, therefore what I was doing was I was still sticking to those tempos, but I was actually doing a lot more reps at each one of those slow tempos sure. or each one of those tempos. Sure. So I was trying to ingrain it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, to be honest, I don't know if that was a thing that helped I mean, I helped with endurance and, and making sure I'm doing these habits right. But for me, it was also like it felt different to play. So I was trying to just, I was experimenting the same time I was working on things. Yeah. Like this um, is, so that was, this is yeah. worth this. I want to make a comment about what you just said. And then I want to move on to a question. The comment would be that's a, to me, that's a cool way to go about trying to learn something. The opposite being, well, I'm just going to increase the tempo each time. So I'll do six or seven or eight tempo increases, right? So with four repetitions, you have these four tempo increases. So if you were like, well, I got to get more repetitions in one of like, uh, I, I guess you could think of, well, I'll just do eight tempo increases instead of four, but that, that might be too many in one given mm -hmm. session. So that's a really cool workaround to me to say, well, I want to get more repetitions in, but I'll just stick to the progression that's listed, but I'll just get more repetitions on any given uh, listed repetition to, like you said, to work a little bit on just getting some more FaceTime on these things that you don't have a lot of time with. I think it's a really cool way that you addressed that. Um, there's going to be two questions in this one question. The first is, this is kind of how it works when you're developing a process is you're kind of experimenting at the same exact time that you really care 
that what the outcome is. And that's very difficult to do. Like you want some sort of guarantee when you have an outcome you care about, you want some sort of guarantee. But often those are the times where we will take the experimentation and the process most seriously. So first, I'd love for you to expand upon that just a little bit about what it felt like to experiment. And it will sort of lean into what you talked about with trust. And I'm curious now that you've seen this process play out, how do you view preparation differently? How would you think you'll approach it in your teaching differently? Just what do you, how do you feel like you learned and have grown from the experience of seeing this experimental process all the way through? Yeah. Um, so the first part was... Um, <clears throat> so what did it feel expand... like to experiment at the same time yeah. as going through it? For me, exciting, mm. <laughs> to be honest, because just like when I was talking about teaching, it's fun to, for me, it's fun to analyze and to figure things out. So I was actually really enjoying practicing and being back on the horn and making music and playing things that I just thought were great pieces of music. Uh, and obvious, I mean, luckily I have... Right. I have knowledge as in like, I know what I want it to sound like. I know how I want it to feel. And also I understand these mechanics of playing the trumpet. I'm a very um, uh, analytical and mechanical thinker. Okay. So like for me, that works. For other people, it doesn't work. Right. Um, another person who I say is that way is Vincent DiMartino, you know, like, like it's like some of us just like to really try to know how things work. Mm -hmm. So it's like I had the knowledge of, I mean, simple things of just like, you know, when you play higher, your tongue placement's higher or, you know, whatever it might be, I, you know, faster air or the tongue angle, all these different things. So I at least had that knowledge to go off of and then could experiment with that. So I knew I was going in the right direction, right? I wasn't experimenting like, oh, I can't get this you know, high F on piccolo. Maybe I should try dropping my tongue lower, you know, like. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So there was, there's there's some basic knowledge. But you're experimenting with the structure of like, what is the right way to basically structurally learn this music, which is the thing I find would be the hardest to experiment with because <clears throat> mm -hmm. there's so little of that out there. Like we yeah. have so much, sorry to interrupt. We have a lot of no. ideas on pedagogy and how to best approach efficiently playing the instrument, but in terms of how to most efficiently learn music, how to most efficiently use our time, and especially with mm -hmm. like, well, if I don't spend enough time, I might not actually know the music well enough and I might not have enough habit ingrained that it might not be there. But if I overpractice, my face is going to die. How do you balance those two things and experimenting in the middle of that? That's kind of what I'm curious for. Got it. Sorry, I was going a different Sorry, direction because... That's important too. Because the way that I was thinking is because it felt different to have my tonsils removed, yeah. you know? I mean, I was, they said, so there's four levels. Uh, four is when your tonsils touch. Three is obviously a little bit less. One is like normal. I was borderline four, they said. Uh, so it was it was a drastic change. I never, you know, knew what that... It wasn't that this all of a sudden happened last minute either. I should say that, like my tonsils were enlarged from like middle school because I had tonsillitis 800 times. Just my pediatrician didn't want to take them out when I was young. So yeah, experimenting with that process. Well, Ryan, that was exciting as well. But yeah, I, to be honest, it was, I knew that from some of the fundamental work we did and having 
like a plan. I'm talking previously mm -hmm. before this, like having the app and having a plan, it took the guessing out, right? Mm -hmm. And that, so that was, I knew that was important because I couldn't waste my, t my energy there. Like I had to know I was covering everything that I needed and being efficient because I didn't have three hours a day to practice. This was audition season here. I was teaching all day. It was, you know, uh, the beginning of the semester, which is insane for us, you know. Um, and then you have a lot of prospective students coming. And I'm trying to do a good job and offer the best I can to all of them. So practice was not a lot. I was practicing most nights uh, between the hours of 11 and 1 a.m. That's when I was practicing. Wow. So now I also have a mental fatigue thing I'm trying to do, right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, how did I, you know, man, I don't know if this is something that you told. Well, I think it's something, I mean, I, I know it's something I learned from you, but for me, a huge part of it was everything I did, I made like a, a decision that everything I was going to do, I was going to at least do it air pattern first and then play it because I knew air patterning would replicate uh, the focus, the air, the direction of the air, I could hear the tonguing, the placement of the tongue, everything, but I wasn't working my chops really, you know? So I knew I could get that extra in. And I think when I started to see the success of it, I was buying into things more. Yeah. The other thing that I did a lot of, um, and I think you have to be careful when you do this, I did, I did do a lot of visualizer. Uh, I have a visualizer mouthpiece and free buzz. And you have to, luckily I was able to monitor and know because I had injured myself in the past and played on an injury that I was very conscious of when, how I was doing things. And, um, but I was doing that to make sure I wasn't spreading my lips and things, just making sure I was really, so I felt like air patterns helped me be focused and so did this mouthpiece buzzing. And also that helps your air because you have no resistance, right? right. right? So I don't know if I'm really answering your no, question. You and there's another, okay. there's another direction I wanna take this because you actually answered it really well. You didn't, but I don't think you realized it. Like. There was a period of time where we worked together, let's say a year ago, where yep. there you didn't you were doing what I told you to do, right? I was like, mm -hmm. here's this program, I want you to do this program, I want you to try to get the most out of it because what I cared about was you seeing the result of structured programming more than I cared about you doing things my way, right? And it mm -hmm. sounds like and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like Having had that experience of seeing what structured programming did where you weren't the one making it, if that makes sense, having that experience seemed to inform you well enough that when it came time for you to write your own type of programming for your specific situation, you were able to do it. So it's not that you were, maybe you weren't even really experimenting or taking a chance. It's just you had had enough experience with this kind of structure in your practice that you kind of understood how to adjust it for your given situation. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that sounds like sort of what you what you were saying. A hundred percent. I mean, that's why I, I went to you as I said, you know, I have a trainer and he tells me what to do and how many, and I don't have to put any thought into it. And I just go. And I said, I want that. Will you do that? And I even said like, I'll pay you to just make that because <laughs> I was just like, because I do it for all my students. Right. And it's so easy. Like, so I was doing this stuff for my students and telling them to do it exactly what we're talking about. But guess who wasn't doing it? Sure, sure. It's hard to you do know, it for like, yourself. Yeah. Right. I wasn't doing it for me. And uh, 
but yeah, yeah. So it was, it was really about this, this like confirmed, like, holy crap, like this is, you got, this is the way to go at least for me, yeah, you know, and having that structure. So it, it was great. And that doesn't mean it has to be, I think sometimes we think of like routines and structure. Um, you can make it rotate. So it's not always the same thing, which, which the, the app does that, right? We have like every other day, different things to keep it interesting. But what I also like is, uh, I've already said I have ADHD. I get hyper-focused on things. So like I was talking about the starts or the long tone exercise <laughs> and I forgot to finish. So I do it as fours. Then I do it as threes, twos, and then ones. Right, so you're... But I'm learning how to blow yeah. through a one. Yeah, still, you know? makes perfect sense. So yeah, that's why I do it that way. But um, I, like I said, I was spending 20 minutes a day on that because I was hyper-focused on it. But it also... So I kind of take everything that you and I would do or you would sign me. And it's like, oh, yeah, this should take five minutes. And next thing you know, I've quadrupled it. But for me, that that's what keeps it interesting, too, is like really and then seeing the result. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Um, so I think that's just kind of fun for me. It doesn't make it monotonous. You know? Yeah. OK. Yeah. I'm going to go on a little <laughs> bit of a thing here. And then sure. I'm going to touch on one last thing and then we'll just see what okay. we have left. So okay. <laughs> I'm coming to understand that uh, we all, well, most of us, maybe not everybody, maybe not everybody cares about this, but we generally, most of us want both our practice to be efficient, that we make good use of our time and we want it to be effective, that the practicing we're doing results in actual growth, right? Mm -hmm. And so efficient practice is why I care about the gold method. It's because like, Basically, when you make all these decisions about what your goals are and how you want to spend your time and how you want to start to have good habits and things like that, you basically set yourself up to succeed at a greater rate and make sure that you're like, okay, I need to spend more time here, less time here. I want to cover this, but it's not a huge deal. And you know exactly what you're focused on, which is a huge part, like you've described, of efficient practices. What are you focused on and are you focused on it all the time or almost all the time? So for effective practice, this is... Uh, what Anders Ericsson calls deliberate practice. There's a number of ways you can think about it, but I like his language around it. And this is the other thing I want to talk about a little bit that um, there's two aspects of it. It's certainly the way we go about decision-making and how we gather data. So we play something, that's data. We say, okay, based on what I just played here, especially if you record it, what do I do next based on what's wrong, what's right, how do I move forward, yada, yada, yada. The thing that I want to stick on, because I think this is partially how you were able to come back relatively quickly and be able to be successful, is what's called a, a mental representation. You could say the mental model, you could say the sound in your head, but you even you even spoke to this, that you knew what you wanted to sound like, you knew what you know music you had a relationship with, you knew how it went, you liked it, you knew how you would sound good on it. This is a huge part of you coming back is that there was a model you were holding yourself, you're playing against. So it wasn't just like, part of it was just, I just need to get back in shape and regroove some habits, essentially. It wasn't like, I need to relearn how to do everything and then make all these other decisions about how to play the trumpet. And so this is to your advantage as a trumpet teacher and someone who spent a lot of time thinking about how things work is you're like, okay, I just need to get myself back aligned with what Barbara would call the path, the path of healthy trumpet playing. And I think that's such a huge thing that cannot be overlooked in this scenario. And that anyone listening to this wanting to know how would I get back into shape if I took some time off or 
you know, how did he do that? Well, that's a huge part is that there's such a clear idea of what you wanted at the end of it so that through structure and through good decision making, you could get there as quickly as possible. I don't know if you have any thoughts about what I just said, but that those two things I think are at the at the the root of efficient and effective practice. No, you, you nailed it uh, 100%. And uh, there's only two pieces on the program and they are both relatively short that I hadn't played before. So those ones, uh, I spent more time making, I, singing, listening to a bunch of different recordings. Uh, and I, I, I did forget to mention this, but you said I recorded myself left and right. Mm. I recorded myself doing the starts exercise. I recorded everything I did was recorded. And I like to use tonal energy because I could see the pitch. I could see the sound waves. I could see whatever was going on. Um, <clears throat> did you listen back to it right away or did you listen to it later? How, like, when did you go back? I, <laughs> I, two, two way, two, two things. I did listen to it right away. And I watched video as well. I was using video as well because I was trying to, like recognize what was going on. So I didn't keep doing it and then see, did it get better or not? Okay, let's do it again. You know what I mean? Yeah. It also gives you that, um, that element of performing, which was part of, you know, that's another thing I did learn in this process was preparing myself to perform. Right. Uh, like I know that that's important that you should do run throughs, but like to start doing that when you're not even fully ready on a piece was very eye-opening to me. And like, so how to handle that? And I would record the whole thing and listen back, you know, and I was holding myself to the standard of like, I need a great recording right now of this. And there's enough pressure just right there of recording for yourself and knowing you're going to listen to it. So yeah, I would listen right away. But then I did also several days later, listen, compare. Sure. Am I making, how big is my progress? But I don't want, you know, yeah. It's kind of like the stepping on the scale. You shouldn't step on the scale every day, but we usually do. <laughs> it just you know? You know, I, I think this is actually a super important conversation because you basically described two different reasons for recording. One of them is I want feedback on how I'm doing so I can make sure I'm still headed in the direction I want. And and there's no, like, if you if you wait to listen to it, like you don't get that feedback right away. So it's valuable right. to listen to the feedback when you want that feedback immediately. But then there's also times where you want to say, well, I almost like how am I doing like on the big picture of it? And there, there it's mm -hmm. valuable, especially if you're recording regularly throughout the process, you can then go back at a later date and listen to week one and week two, the same kind of work. And you say, oh, I can clearly hear some trends in the right direction. So actually, I actually think there's two separate reasons to record and there's two, then two times you would listen to it. And you obviously took advantage mm -hmm. of both, but I think people get lost in like the, when's the right time to do it. And I just think it depends on what you want out of it. Mm -hmm. And also make sure that, you know, it, when you're working on something and you're recording, it might be a bar or two bars, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm not, or may, maybe if it's a phrasing thing, I'm working on that, but I'm not, that was part of my practice was I was working on specific things. I had goals for different things, you know, um, <clears throat> the, uh, and actually I'd love sometime, obviously we can't do it today, but I have like a whole thing about being motivated and staying motivated and like games and 
techniques and all that I talk with my students about and recording and comparing obviously is one of them because we see ourselves every day, right? We hear ourselves every day and you're like, oh, I'm never getting better at this. And then you listen back like, oh, okay, this is a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Totally. And from <laughs> for motivation, it's one of the best ways to do it because it's objective. Like the recorder is just telling you what you sounded like before, what you sound like now. We don't mm -hmm. have to get as emotional about our our progress because it's just, oh, mm -hmm. I did get, or maybe I'm not getting better, but then I can ask why or go talk to my teacher and say, can you listen to these two things? Because I feel like I've improved, but the recorder doesn't sound like it. And I know it doesn't say anything about me other than the work that I'm doing is not resulting in what I want it to. Can you help me figure this out? Like it becomes data to go ask other people if you can't figure it out. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And I just, I want to go back really quick and just, again, reemphasize how important it is to practice performing when you have a performance coming up. Like, I guess I'm saying that, I mean, I've done a zillion recitals, a zillion concerts, right? I've taught a million people, but this really, because I was, it helped with any, I shouldn't say, it helped with the doubt that was in my head that I did it. I did it again. I did it again. I did it again. I can make it through. Was it exactly what I wanted? No, but it helped me versus that being the first time. And then the mental side of it, right? How do, what do I, oh no, this is not going well. How do I pull myself back in and all that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that was really, really important in my process of preparing uh, because I, like I said, I was running stuff and doing the program before I was even ready technically to do it. And that was, um, it's kind of like when we would do, um, and maybe you want to speak on this, Ryan, with the fundamentals, like let's say we're doing like an Arbin articulation thing. We might do like one at like half, or like a slow tempo, a medium tempo, then the fast tempo. And the fast tempo, you may not be 100% ready for that, but we learn stuff from playing it that way that we then apply mm -hmm. to when we go back and do the slow. Yeah. And I was using pretty much that in my preparation of repertoire when I was doing a run through. Right. You know what I'm saying? And I would, I mean, I could be wrong, but I would say that you wouldn't necessarily do it that way every time, but because you were on such an accelerated timetable, you kind of had to mix and match these like phases, if you want to call them a preparation, you had to kind of perform before you were ready because that's a, we need a certain amount of that kind of uh, confidence building as you, as you described from the deliberate practice literature that I've read, part of deliberate practice is pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zone. And so this is kind of what you're speaking to. And I would caveat this with saying, um, we, you know, Andrew Huberman, do you know, Andrew, his podcast, he's, uh, I think I forget exactly what his, what his, uh, no, ophthalmologist, sure. neurobiologist, maybe something like that at Stanford. He's just put out this podcast, tons of science related stuff. Really amazing. Uh, he describes it as like the, we need to make errors to cue us into the things that need to be fixed. And if we never make errors, we never know what needs to be fixed. So errors are actually yeah. okay, but sometimes we can take that information and it can become like, well, we can just make errors all the time and, and not matter. But I've come across something where he said, well, the optimal amount is like 15%. So 85% great playing 15% errors is about an optimal layer. I, as you know, I would say 90, 10, 90% optimal starting place type thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. So all of that put together, we do need to push ourselves outside of our comfort zone. But in my opinion, it should be a time and a place that we've decided to do this and not just like, well, I can't play this. And I'm going to say my bad playing is 
I'm pushing myself outside of my comfort zone. I, don't, I think that I think we need to be more meticulous and more careful about when we're saying this one repetition is going to push me outside of my comfort zone. I'm doing this to learn something so that I can infuse my practice with even more data and feedback. I think that's what you're what you're talking about. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. It like I'm telling you, opened up my eyes so much to preparation. I I'm like a very type A person and all, but I have never practiced like this, like I did preparing for this. And it was because, you know, it was like a gun being held to your head. It was like, you got to do it. And for me, it was like, I rather have a plan than not, you know, than just bash my face because I've done that before. And it, I've been successful with that and not successful, you know, and <clears throat> I'll be honest, the recital, I thought there was some stuff that went really, really well. And then there was some stuff that, you know, I I was like, man, I worked a lot of time on that spot and it didn't show up. Yeah. And, but it didn't, you know what? It almost was freeing. It was like, it didn't, normally that would have been still stuck in my head while I was playing, you know, like really beating myself up about something. But it didn't because I knew I did everything I could. And something about that, built your confidence, right? For performing, knowing that you did everything that you could, you didn't slack or anything, you know, and are there things you could change and that you learn from it? Sure. But, um, I think that's really good for people to know, like that information there is like, at least for me, it was very freeing. And I like, that was the first time I played a recital where I wasn't nervous at all. I mean, there was the adrenaline, but I wasn't like, Normally, I'm like sick to my stomach. Like, I really don't want to do this yeah, kind of feeling, yeah. you know? And I was excited. And I was like, what? <laughs> and, you know, like I should have experienced that maybe that that a long time ago because I've been doing recitals, right, for, I don't know, 20 years? <laughs> yeah. But that was the first time. And I don't know. That was just... It was great, man. It was awesome. That's it was so fun. Pretty gratifying for me to, to, you know, to sort of pick your brain this way and to hear you say that because, you know, part of what I hope to be able to provide through this podcast and other content that I'm making is just the idea that, like, you got to a place where you had a process, you designed it, you you do. I mean, you certainly, I I sort of gave you some ideas, but it wasn't like I told you exactly what to do for this. And it resulted in you being able to be free because you actually feel like you did everything that you possibly could. And just no, like, in my opinion, you don't necessarily have to prepare that way for every single thing you ever will do in your life. But understanding that you have that option, I feel like it's got to be super cool because you're like, well, for things that I really care about, I know I can do I know I can do the very best I can and then let go of the result because I did the best I can. And I hope other people are inspired and encouraged by your story to say, maybe I should figure out what's the very best I can do. And hopefully this has given them some ideas on what that can look like. Uh, I just, I'm grateful that you uh, are so willing to share about what you, what you did and what things worked and what things didn't. I think conversations like this are super helpful. The honesty about it is super helpful. So I appreciate it. I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity to share because we're, we're all, I think we're, if we all take the approach of we're trying to help each other out, we can really 
grow, all of us. I mean, just talking about this has like really made me realize some things I was doing that maybe I didn't even process, you know, and looking back at it. So, um, yeah, it's really, it's really neat. Right. The, and I don't know. I listen to a ton of podcasts. I listen to your podcast. I like Tim Ferriss's mm-hmm. podcast a lot. And I just, I love the ones, you know, when they're picking people's brains and how they do things. Cause I may say something and a person may be like, totally against it or they may be like i'm gonna try that but then they create their own things from that and that's so cool yeah and it's cool Uh, that it's cool to be at this place where you had this experience and now i get the like the uh, for me this is like joyful you know what i mean it's like (laughs) because it take it's taken me a long time to get here to sort of actually finally understand that i should basically assume i know nothing and ask people questions based on that like instead of like I have all the answers and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask questions that are like basically trying to confirm what I already know. I'm really trying now to be like, well, Aaron listened to some things that I shared, but then he went and did his thing. And it's like, okay, like I need to understand what he did so that I can be more effective. This is going all the way back to that beginning part of the conversation. It's right. like now people are interacting with the ideas and it's like, okay, how do you figure out what they did? Because Maybe they did exactly what I told them and that's cool. But if they adjusted it, I need to know how they did that so I can better inform future people who may be interested in these kinds of things, like even more options that are available. So like I'm trying to also demonstrate from my perspective what it can look like to learn from others who have learned from me. I think that's the coolest thing in the world. It's just this. It's totally. Absolutely. That's what makes it fun, right, man? And and. And that's what's cool about you and working with you is that you care about that. So therefore, somebody is excited to share. I mean, I was, during this whole process, I was texting you, you know, just sometimes an update saying, hey, this is going on, or, you know, I'm excited about this, or what do you think about this? Um, And it's cool to have that community. It goes back to, I was talking about community and deep relationships. And, you know, I, I, all of my, specifically my trumpet teachers, I feel like I have that relationship and that means the world to me or you as a coach of mine or even my my trainer I have at the gym, like, because these people are investing in me as I'm investing in me, as I'm growing. And that means the world that they are willing to do that, mm-hmm. you know, even if paid, it's still like I, growth is an amazing thing yeah. and growth does not always mean it might be uh, a positive thing at first. Growth might take a dip down first. I, I talk about trumpet playing, and every time in my trumpet playing, it's gotten better, including this getting the tonsils out, because I was trying to play more efficiently. Like That's one of the things that I was going to say is when you start over, like when you're getting to get, uh, you know, you took two weeks off, like to me, that's the perfect time, right, to like, like really focus in on everything. Like, so I was loving it <laughs> um, besides the sounding bad part. <laughs> but but you know what? But it was something that you said to me, and I've been using this with some students, not all students, um, that was really like, you gave me permission to say, it's okay to not sound good. You know how you want it to feel. And there's been a lot of times, right? We always have that Like, if it sounds good, you're doing it right. Or like, let the sound lead you. And there is a truth to that. But I'm like, I can make myself sound good by tensing up in my throat to make it happen and all. Maybe not as good as someone who didn't do that. So 
it was really like freeing to experiment with just, this is how I want it to feel and trusting that that's going to get me to the place. So I actually feel like through this process, not only in a practice way and all that, that I grew, but I felt like as a player, I was improving, you know, yeah. during that time, which was so cool. Yeah, man. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Any final thoughts that you didn't get to say that you were hoping to say? Uh, if not, that's cool. We covered a lot of ground. I know. I talk a lot. I'm this sorry. is what a podcast um, is for. <laughs> I, you know, uh, yeah, I think, you know, if there's a, cu a couple little things here that it's important to be authentic to yourself. And uh, the reason I say that is if you are authentic to yourself, to yourself and to others, but more importantly to yourself, that that is going to allow you to go wherever it is that you want to go. Um, and that might seem like an out of the blue thing, but I, this is even with trumpet, you know, like I know as a trumpet player, what it is I want to be, what it is I want to represent, but I'm also authentic to myself and knowing like, I'm okay with being this way. I'm okay playing at this level or something. I want to grow, but you know what? It's okay. I don't need to beat myself up that I'm not, you know, that as, as with my job, I'm playing here and, you know, Thomas Hooten's here playing principal in the LA. And for me to be Thomas Hooten, well, we have way different, what our days look like are way different, mm -hmm. you know? So I'm not using that as an excuse, but I'm also saying like authentically, like I'm happy and that's important. I'm happy doing things this way, you know? So I think we, us, ourselves, our students, sometimes we beat ourselves up because we don't sound like that recording that we're comparing ourselves to. You know, I had a student this week and like, man, this person doesn't breathe for this long. I'm like, it's a recording, dude. Like they might've like did it in multiple takes and pasted it together and they just left the breath out. I'm like, you know, yeah, like, yeah. so being authentic, being real, be real, that's important. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to say is that if you, so I used to say, if you work hard enough towards something, you can achieve anything. But now there's another part that goes to that. If you work hard enough, smartly, you can achieve ever, anything. And that's the moral of this story, really, right? When we talk about this whole winning the job was like, I pulled off something that I don't think I would have before in my life, younger Aaron, knowing that I wouldn't, I would have freaked out. I would have sabotaged myself. I've done it with military auditions in the past, not with much longer time periods, but I would just, there was once my teacher said, he's like, you stand a really good chance. I was a finalist for this one military job. He's like, you stand a really good chance at winning this. And there it is, it, that's it. And there it was, yeah. that right there made me sabotage myself. I couldn't even, it was the worst audition I ever played. Yeah. The worst. I couldn't even get notes out. Like all of a sudden, because there's this whole mental side. So yeah, work smartly, be authentic. And, and we're all growing. I don't have all the answers and I'm excited to keep growing. For sure. <laughs> um, well, this has been awesome, dude. I'm so glad to get to pick your brain a little bit and get to actually know you. You know, obviously we've had mm -hmm. some of these conversations and uh, I know some of the other, you know, things that have had other conversations that we didn't get to have here, but mm -hmm. um 
I just appreciate your perspective. If other people appreciate your perspective as well and they want to get in touch with you and kind of say this was great or they want to know more about your thoughts about Trumpet or anything else going on, sure. how would people get in touch with you? Um, <clears throat> so I have a website, aaronwittick.com. That's A-A-R-O-N-W-I-T-E-K. And you can, there's a, a contact there. You can also find me on social media, Aaron Wittick Trumpet, I think is what it is on Facebook. And then uh, I have an Instagram as well. I think it's Aaron Wittick. <laughs> so pretty simple. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I would love to hear people's thoughts or their experiences because uh, I love learning from others. And um and, and, and also just, uh, you know, put it out there is I did mention this. We didn't talk about it, but there's another podcast I did called Coffee and Clarks, uh, where I talk more specifically about my injury and playing on the injury and playing uh, with, in pain for nine years. And I've had a lot of people contact me about that because um, that's like kind of like a hidden world. Like people don't want to talk about it. And I was one of those people, but... I learned a lot from it and I'm willing to share any information to help anyone that's going through that. <clears throat> all right. Yeah. Check that out. There's all, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, I just think it's cool. I think people should reach out to you. I think people should, you're obviously making yourself available. And so anyone who is interested uh, should find their way to you because you're obviously willing to help. If anybody needs to get in touch with me, you can do it on that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings at all, I'd appreciate it if you gave a rating and a review on iTunes and don't forget to uh, leave it or don't forget to share this on social media. So other people can find it and hear about it and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. You can check out Brandon's work on uh, epiphanyrecordingstudio.com. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.